Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Busman. A lot of people ask me exactly how I managed to go around the world for roughly 10 years without a home when I was a young man. But nobody asks how I go around the world when I'm stuck at home. There is a way. All you have to do is break bread at your own table with someone who's from afar and you can get a very similar feeling. We have a guy who occasionally shows up at Larry King's breakfast table. You never really know when he's going to be in town. I'll get a text from him a day in advance, but when that text comes in, a smile immediately comes to my face. Ozan is coming to breakfast. Ozan Oscaral doesn't travel just for the sake of travel, like I did as a young man. He travels as part of his job as CEO of the private equity firm Tanto Capital Partners. But our talk today is not about investing. It's about seeing the world through the lens of travel. Because, as I like to say, nobody flies like Ozan. This guy routinely racks up more than a million airline miles a year as he darts across continents. One day he's in the UK, next he's in Russia, Istanbul, Ghana, Argentina, New York, LA. Never stops. The deals he works on aren't the type that can be done on Skype. They need a personal touch. So he's constantly traveling to create bonds out of trust. Which, when I come to think about it, is not very different from what I was doing when I was traveling with a backpack as a young man. Creating bonds from trust. When Ozan comes through the door, I'm always uplifted because I know he's going to tell us about the world from a unique vantage point. Ozan is from Turkey, has a residence in London, got started in finance at Merrill Lynch, and he's run his own company in Russia. So his worldview is a worldview, especially when you understand how often he's touching down on different continents. It's one thing to watch CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, or read the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. It's another to get the perspective of somebody who's just been here and there and there and there and has a sense of the way actions in one place connect with another. So when Ozan told me he was coming to town and staying for a few days, I thought, now this is an opportunity. Usually he's in and out. And I thought this would be a great chance to get him to come on big questions. That way, Everyone can get a feel for what he brings to the breakfast table. I should also point out that Ozan is a member of the Brookings Institution Foreign Policy Leadership Council. The Brookings Institution is more than 100 years old and is routinely described as the top think tank in the world. Looks at global economy, governance, and foreign policy. So Ozan is constantly updated by movers and shakers around the world. That means when Ozan speaks, it's wise to pay attention. You can get a feeling for the accelerating pace of the world in our talk. This conversation took place not long ago, but since we turned on the recorder in a room with a loud air conditioner, sorry about that, North Korea's Kim Jong-un has shaken hands with South Korea's Moon Jae-in. And plans are now in the works for a meeting between President Trump 
and Kim Jong-un to talk about denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. Things are moving fast. I think you'll see that this episode is the perfect backdrop for my sponsors, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter. As you're about to hear, some of the changes Ozan sees coming very soon are going to require people to step up as entrepreneurs. That means they'll be needing websites. And that means Squarespace. Other changes Ozan talks about mean massive job shifts. And who's better at getting you the right job or your company the right talent than ZipRecruiter? You'll hear about our sponsors later, but for now, here's the world as it is according to Ozan. Welcome, Ozan, to Big Questions. It's good to be here, Cal. I cannot believe you are in one place for more than a couple of days. I know, right? Normally, it's just one day after another day after another day in a different country all the time. What's it like for you not to be zooming around the world? I know you're here for, for a little while, but can, can you do this? Is it possible Look, it for you is, to stay in the same place? <laughs> well, many people think it's not, including my parents. In fact, um, a funny story, when what, the one present that I gave myself at the end of last year was to kind of... Uh, take from Christmas to the end of my birthday, so to around 10th of January, let's just say, uh, and just stay in one place. So I chose my hometown of Istanbul to do that, uh, and that was 18 days. And no one, and I mean no one, believed I could do it. 18 days no in one place. No one said that. My, my mom was saying, you know what, one day we're going to see you pop out of China and <laughs> Shanghai, Africa. There's no way you can survive for 18 days in one place ever. And in fact, I did it. And not just did I not fly anywhere, I completely ruled out and refused to even drive anywhere that is longer than two hours away. I just needed that reset. And that was tough. It was tough. It wasn't easy. The first week was, you know, heavy withdrawal symptoms. Well, one of the great things about you coming to Larry King's breakfast table, my breakfast table, is it happens sporadically. We never know when it's going to happen. It's just, hey, here's Ozan. <laughs> and we all look up with a great feeling because we know we are now going to find out what's going on in the world because you have such a unique vantage point. You are in all these places on, on top of being a member of the Brookings Institution. So you're sitting in on lectures from generals, cabinet members, but you're also going to meet the leader of Argentina. And it's just a delight to have you sit down and tell us what's going on out there. Well, I mean, the feeling is mutual. I love coming to your breakfast table to see you, to see Larry, to see all the, uh, the guys on the table and the gals. And uh, look, it's interesting because a part of what I do, and actually a, a large part of what I love about what I do is to very naturally to be able to put the pieces together in terms of what really is going on in the world at any given moment. Now, this is dynamic. The world never stops, never has, hopefully never will. 
Um, but what is interesting is that I always visualize this whole thing uh, as like this big neural net, right? The more of the nerve endings you touch, the clearer the picture becomes. And the clearer the picture becomes, A, I'm an investor, so I have to understand what the world is at, is, is at its current state, but also where it's heading towards, so I can actually position my investments as such. But in addition to that, uh, to me, it's fascinating, right? We all live in the same planet. Again, different cultures, nuances, um, you know, um, priorities. And in this very globalized world, everything that happens to anybody, or anything rather that happens to, uh, say, you know, U.S. affects Britain, which affects Turkey, which affects Russia, which affects China. So we are not independent from each other. We don't live in our little bubbles. So aside from the fact that it's good to understand what's going on in the world, I think it is fascinating uh, to know how we are all interlinked. What is the biggest change do you think the world is going to see over the next few years? Look, I mean, uh, across, obviously, like everyone knows, AI, machine learning. What does that mean? Blockchain, robotics, biotechnology, uh, cybersecurity. How, uh, how will we see that? Look, I think in the short, the short term, the very short term disruption is going to end up coming from the robotics sector. Uh, because it is unfortunately going to end up causing a lot of a lot of job losses in the world over the next four to five years. Not ten, not fifteen. Four to five years. Um, what, like, what are we looking at? No, you're looking at this. Let me do, uh, interesting number for you, right? As of 2017, roughly around 10% of all global manufacturing was done by robots uh, across all countries. Uh, by 2022 the forecast is about 35%. Now that 25% difference in production, manufacturing alone, across the globe is equal to something to the tune of 300 million job losses over the next four to five years. Now, these people have wives, husbands, kids. So you are talking about potentially in the short term, a billion people, more or less, being socially and economically disintermediated. Now, think about that for a second. Now, of course, the argument is when technological changes come, new they, jobs. they also open create new jobs, right. new sectors that we don't know that exist yet, and therefore it will hopefully absorb it. But here is a difference. Whereas so far, that pace of change has been happening on a, on a manageable speed base right now. Right now, we are looking at the power of exponentiality, a lot happening in very small uh, window gaps, gaps basically, and therefore, in the best case scenario whereby someone that loses their job, for example, I don't know, let's just say the classic example, truck drivers, right? Truck drivers losing their job. Now, a part of those truck drivers will be able to re-educate themselves to do something else at the best case scenario. And some won't, by the way. But even at the best case, it takes time. Re-educating yourself, retooling yourself takes time. So therefore, the short-term disruption we're all going to have to live with on the, I guess, negative end are these job losses. And what will be the ramification of that? Because I think we're already seeing the world voting for very strong leaders who are hearkening back to better times. Exactly. And, 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 and there is the catch. You see, and that, that's a great question. Because I'm less worried about the financial impact of this, meaning there will be governments will find, they will have to find a way of helping these people. 
okay? Because you just can't have billion people hungry on the, you know, in the world. Additional billion people, should, I, I should say, right? But they will find a way. They will tax, like the, the famous Bill Gates um, idea, you know, tax the robots and so forth. They will find a way of providing some income. In fact, that uh, is a notion called the universal income. It's already been talked about. Uh, it's only active, as far as I know, in Finland on a pilot project whereby, you know, the people that cannot be re-educated uh, or until they, get, they find a job, they get paid X thousand euros or dollars or whatever. So it's kind uh, of like unemployment. However, however, exactly, however, that doesn't change the social ramifications of this. The, this, ha- this has a risk of creating almost an India caste-like situation where there are people that are, you know, undesirable and people that rule. And that is a very dangerous mindset. And by the way, what I see is that a lot of young people and a lot of um, working class, blue collar, let's just say people, for, for lack of a better word, they are fearful about the future prospects that they have, and by the way, rightly so. And unfortunately, that fear is manifesting itself within the political spectrum around the globe uh, with an extreme left, extreme right, call it what you will, but an extreme candidate. So, you know, people were surprised that Donald Trump won the, the, the elections in, uh, in the U.S., they should not be surprised because Donald Trump came and he said, I am going to bring manufacturing jobs back. Now, the chances are he won't. He can't because those jobs have not gone to China. They're going to be going to robots. But doesn't matter. He said, I'm going to bring jobs back. So, you know, people that are fearful about their future prospects said, you know what? Let me try this guy. Why not? Because more of the same is not going to be good for me. Certainly not. So why not try this guy? Then you have Brexit, right? And then you look at uh, different political movements around Europe. You have now the five-star movement in Italy that have won, which was unthinkable a few years ago. Unthinkable, right? They were a joke. No one ever thought they had a, any chance of getting into government, but now they're the kingmakers. Then you have more autocratic uh, regimes around the world uh, that are kind of rising up. So therefore, you're right. I mean, this is manifesting itself. Uh, and I'll tell you why that is, by the way. Because think about it. The way that we live right now is very different to the way that we lived before the internet. Very, right? You know, day and night. This is not just a technological revolution. This actually is a part of evolution. So we are all evolving. We are living much more interconnected. We know exactly what each other is doing constantly. And we need, we, now we are developing a desire to always feel liked in the social media, to be acknowledged in social media, in, in, in a social environment. So, so this how is, is it? wiring our brains to be different? No, we are just people. evolving. We are just evolving. But how about this? Everything is evolving except for the archaic political structures that have been here for hundreds of years set up to govern humankind. And that archaic political structure now is creaking under pressure of change. And that is, that, that is the, the first thing we will, we, will, we will see. And then there are different facets to it, you know. We are investing in, in, in biotech right now, for example. We think that biotech is a great place because it will change lives for the better. Uh, people will live longer. We think that it's a very positive karma change. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you have cybersecurity concerns and worries, which are very real. You are now talking about the notion of having hyperwars. You know what a hyperwar is? Explain. A hyperwar is the, the war that happens extremely fast and quick because the decision making the, the, the decision making processes rather that are normally dependent on human beings and people 
being outsourced to algorithms and AI. So it's whoever's got the best algorithms wins. If you, I mean, this is, this is I mean, how would, this, is, how is, would we see to, this war being fought? And then how do they declare a winner and a loser? And what does it mean? Look, the good thing is, okay, let's just talk about something positive now. It's not all doom and gloom. By the way, none of this is doom and gloom. It's just, it's just, it's just the, the matter of fact that you know what we are right now, where we are right now, is a quite a momentous uh, time in history that's full of change. Um, but right now, for example, it is much more difficult for a country to declare war on another country versus how it was in World War II. There are much more checks and balances, so on and so forth. But the wars of our time are not being fought like the wars of the time gone by. Now we have the concept of proxy wars. For example, what is happening in Syria, a human drama, right? But actually, different world powers are fighting it out in somebody else's country. I see. So it's really now looking for a schoolyard where the, other, where the kids after school can go and fight, and nobody has to fight in front of their house. True, true. And, uh, you know... Uh, Unfortunately for the Syrians... Their country is the schoolyard. They, 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 their country, unfortunately, for them is the schoolyard, and unfortunately, it's not coming back anytime soon. And I feel, I feel, I feel very sorry for, uh, for, for the Syrians. And actually, I feel, I feel guilty as a human being. And I look at us, and for all the, the good qualities that we have, I find it remarkable that how we have all become so desensitized towards loss of human life. I find that shocking and appalling. And that goes for everyone. You know, when you read the, the, the news of a thousand people in Syria having died, you don't feel the same as if you heard that there was a, a mass shooting in a school that killed 10 people next to you. Now, both things are horrific. That should not happen. And the value of a human life in the United States is exactly the same as the value of a human life in Syria, right? Except we don't feel a life as if it is. A life is right? a life. Exactly. So that, that's the kind of world that we're living in. Uh, that, that's one side of technology. Uh, cybersecurity is very important. And in fact, they always say, I don't, I don't, I don't know why they have the word, word cyber in front of it now, as if uh, to make it sound less important. I mean, our lives are cyber, right? So they should just call it security. But no, cybersecurity, cyber warfare. Uh, I don't need to tell you uh, how, um, you know, uh, the, the recent elections have been kind of uh, affected by that, or at what, least allegedly. What do, what do you think about that? Because so you, you've worked in Russia. You come here, make deals. Is, is this just the way of the world? Have Has the United States not impacted elections around the world in the past? I don't is know. It, I, who am I to say? I don't know. But I'll tell you something. About security, and, and, and since you mentioned the U.S., um, the policies of the U.S. that actually have inadvertently gotten us here. Look, ever since the World War II, we have been living in what is called the post-World War II global liberal world order. Quite a mouthful, right? Uh, led by United States, both militarily and morally, by the way. Now, and yet what we are seeing right now, in addition to the technological uh, disruption that I just mentioned about is a significantly risked up geopolitical landscape uh, with you know significant risk of prospective uh, big conflicts. Uh, 
So how do we get here? Do you remember how we got here? Whew, from 1945 to Not now. 1945. Forget about that. Okay. Let's come closer. I mean, when did we get into this, this everyone is fighting each other mode recently? You Think know, that's a, that's a good point because there, I'm thinking back to Desert Storm where George Bush 41 put a coalition together, but then it was sort of everybody against Saddam Hussein. I don't, I'm trying to think of a time where people, so many people, especially in the Middle East, were aligned against each other. And it's hard, I think for most people here in the United, most people in the United States would have a hard time identifying who was fighting who there. Well, I mean, that's right, because it is difficult to identify if you don't know the details of it, because there's just so many different uh, sectarian battles uh, that are supported by more geopolitical um, uh, side-taking. You know, the biggest, the biggest geopolitical battle in the world now, and I think for the next 100 years, is and will be U.S. versus China, for example. Very interesting. Fascinating. Not U.S. versus Russia. It's U.S. versus China. Why is that? Look, because... Um, for most part, if you look at the way that Chinese perceive themselves and governance versus the U.S. does, there are certain things that are not reconcilable. Um, you know, U.S. is still referred to as, um, you know, the new land, the, the American project, you know, and yet China, from their perspective, and it's true, has been always a fixed part of human life since forever. Uh, in the U.S., having a big government is a bad thing. In, the Ch in China, having a big government is a good thing. Uh, the way Chinese perceive time is different than the way U.S. Americans and Westerners, let's just say, perceive time. Can you Meaning, give an example? Course, look, I mean, China has always been there and, has always, and will always be there. So the way that they govern is they are incentivized to think very, 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 very long term. Whereas in, in, in the Western world, in democracies, of course, you know, we're all talking about elections, midterms, elections, midterms, two years, four years, two years, four years. So think about it. A politician is a politician, is a politician, is a politician. Everywhere in the world. doesn't matter if it's a German politician, American, Turkish, what have you, right? Every politician is first and foremost interested in being able to retain their power, hopefully to make a difference. But nonetheless... Goal number one is to retain power. Now, how could you expect these politicians to think and invest in the long term if that will require for them to make sacrifices for the short term? They can't because they have to survive. They have to retain their power. Whereas in China, uh, the political system is as such whereby they are incentivized and rewarded for really thinking down the long term. But I mean, that's, that's, that's the semantics, that's technicality. The reality is the, the perception of uh, a way of life between China and U.S. is different. So therefore, it's normal. China is growing, uh, albeit they will have their own problems internally, socially, and uh, it's not just about military might, it's about economic might and also how, how we are interconnected. So suffice to say that in the, in the big picture, in 100,000 feet view, let's just say we have U.S. v. China, okay? Uh, and then, of course, you have, you know, the, the Russian situation uh, ever since the, the Cold War. Now, uh, Russians are, are frankly people that are to be admired. They're strong people. They, 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 go, they have a huge and very rich history. 
before Soviets, from the Imperial Russia days, right? So they are proud people. Um, in terms of their governance structure, of course, it's quite, you know, um, authoritarian. Uh, and that's obviously at odds with what you would call the liberal world order. So therefore, there's a conflict there. And then, of course, you have the sectarian um, religion-based conflicts that are happening in the Middle East. Uh, and then, of course, no one talks about this, but it's actually a shame that you have issues that are going on in, say, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. You have, you know, a Boko Haram terrorist organization in Nigeria. Uh, you have, you know, what's happening in Venezuela, for example, in Latin America. Uh, so you have a lot of different conflicts that are brewing up right now. And, uh, but to answer my own question that I posed to you a minute ago, so when did this all start? For me, this all really got kicked into a higher gear when Russia annexed Crimea. And then, of course, ISIS became more prominent. Uh, Iraq was becoming more of a mess. Then, of course, Syria happened. Uh, and, you know, U.S.-China issues, TPP versus Asia Invest Infrastructure Investment Bank, so on and so forth. And I always think of U.S.'s position in what we have been used to living is as the, the cop that lives in a rough neighborhood. So just imagine, think of a rough neighborhood, whatever that may be. There are you know, gangsters and tough guys living in your neighborhood. And there's a cop. But because the cop lives there, nothing takes place in the neighborhood. Right? So one day, cop goes on holiday for a week. Nothing happens. For the second week, nothing happens. Cop's going to come back. Because the cop's going to come back. After a month, uh, people are kind of wondering, when is the cop coming back? After two months, if the cop is coming back, and after three months, the cop ain't coming back, so therefore it's a free-for-all, right? So what? there are two questions there. One, is the United States supposed to be the cop? And, well, I, I always like to ask my questions one at a time. Is the United States supposed to be the cop? I think that's an excellent question. The United States had assumed the role of a cop after World War II because, I mean, obviously I wasn't born there. You weren't born there. You didn't live through that. But that was an extremely traumatic event for the whole world. So the United States did assume the role of a cop. Now, the question is, should it continue to do so? I don't know. You know, I don't know. But, but um, unless there's a better system, then the, the argument goes kind of, yeah, it should continue, right? Because we have, we, we have had the longest time of peace and prosperity uh, in a, one go in probably world history since the World War II in terms of significant conflicts and wars. But here is the problem with that or with the execution of, of that. Now, you know, you may like him, not like him. I'm not going to go into that. But Obama-era foreign policy was a disaster. And in fact, I think it was a disaster because there was none, especially in a situation whereby, okay, fine, he inherited a mess. Okay, economically, and also in terms of what was happening in Iraq. Um, so, okay, what do you do? Do you pull out? Or do you, do you basically do what is right for the situation that you inherited? Now, okay, I understand, maybe you should not have invaded it, but you have. So now that you have, right. you, can't, you can't pretend that never happened. And therefore, I think the, the fact that U.S. troops were pulled out of uh, of the Middle East, uh, in Iraq in particular, very quickly was number one. But I think the most important thing was with Syria. When Obama told Assad, look, 
Here is my red line. If you cross that red line, there'll be consequences. And that's use of chemical weapons. Exactly, use of chemical weapons. And yet what happens? They use chemical weapons and U.S. did nothing. You can't do that. If you're going to pull a gun and tell someone, you know what, if you take a step, you know, one step forward, I'm going to shoot you, and they take a step forward, they will think you're either bluffing or your gun is not loaded. Or both, right? Do, so, you think, do you think that it actually hurt Obama in some ways to be given the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, so early in his presidency? Absolutely. I think, I think that was one of the contributing factors, and I think that was a mistake. Um, how, do you, how could you burden a man with such responsibility at the beginning of his term for a position that is arguably one of the most difficult seats to manage in the world? I mean, it's easy for us to criticize every single president, right? Because, you know, we are sitting in this nice room talking about it, but they have to make real decisions at real time with limited information, and that's a tough job. But how do you, you know, increase that burden by basically that Nobel Peace Prize was a message to Obama saying, I expect you to bring peace. But guess what? You really want to bring sustainable peace, not just peace in the short term. And that may require you to take a different course of action, for example. I think that was, the, I think that was a mistake, Cal. Listening to Ozan talk about the coming of robotics and artificial intelligence made me realize how much entrepreneurism is going to be valued down the road. As an entrepreneur, you make your own work. That makes Squarespace even more valuable because entrepreneurs have to get their message out there over the web. And Squarespace can do that in the most elegant and unique ways. Go to calfussman.com and check out what Squarespace has done for me. I got an email earlier today from someone who went to calfussman.com and thought I was a tech whiz. Ha! You're probably laughing with me if you've been listening to big questions for a while because nothing could be further from the truth. I am old school, but Squarespace makes it easy. Go to squarespace.com, enter the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get 10% off your next domain name or website. You'll be ready for the future. And ZipRecruiter. When Ozon talks about the accelerated pace in the world, it makes me think about what it was like to look for work in the early 80s. No internet. You wrote letters and sent resumes to places you might like to work, but how many letters could you send? And the companies could only access the talent they knew about from immediate connections and letters that came in from the mail. Contrast that with ZipRecruiter. Company needs talent. All it's got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in the job description, and with a single click, that company will have qualified candidates within 24 hours. And get this, if you go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, you'll get a free trial. How can you beat that?
So when there was no response to the use of chemical weapons in Syria, basically it seems to everybody that there is no, no cop here, there is nobody here, There's, it's been abandoned. So does that invite everybody in to do whatever they want? Look, it's not, it's not that black and white, but let's just put it this way. It looks weak. It looks weak in a place where you need to show strength. Um, and um, so things are changing. Uh, the long and short of it is that we are where we are. Um, I think geopolitically the world is in a, an extremely fragile place. And I think the biggest risk factor in the short term is indeed North Korea. It is not an insignificant thing. It is not, it is not a, um, you know, not just a, another madman in, in a, you know, far away place that is not going to be of any consequence. It will, uh, because you're talking about, uh, first of all, you're assuming that he's going to be a rational operator and assumptions are always dangerous anyway, but they are very dangerous when you add nuclear arsenal to assumptions, right? Um, so it needs to be contained and managed, and it is time critical. Uh, if North Korea has enough time, given enough time and resources, they will, I mean, in fact, they are nuclear already. It's just a matter of uh, being able to miniaturize it and put it onto a, an ICBM, which is an intercontinental ballistic missile, to be able to reach any country, including the U.S. Uh, and once they go nuclear, then, you know, no country that has ever gone nuclear has been invaded. There's some logic to that, uh, uh, to that sentence. And it's dangerous. So anyway, so we live in fragile times uh, that we're going to be facing a significant amount of change from all angles over the next five to ten years at an exponential pace. And for one, I think that the, the financial markets that globally we operate in uh, are not seeing all of the risks uh, that do exist, predominantly because in the aftermath of 2008, we never managed to take the hit of that crisis up front. We never corrected? Look, we never corrected it properly. We couldn't correct it properly because, uh, for lack of a better word, everyone got with their hands in the cookie jar when that happened. So um, you had to defer. You had to kind of throw the ball down the line. When you say everybody got caught, who, Look, who's I everybody? I mean, you know, everybody meaning, uh, you know, French banks had significant positions. So if you actually had taken the losses that you should have taken up front and created a, a blank, blank page, you would have had some French banks go under. Some American banks like Lehman would have gone under, so on and so forth. So, of course, uh, A, that was not possible, politically not possible more than anything else, but also, you know, uh, it, is, it is human nature to want to save the situation, which is fine. And you then had suddenly the central bankers uh, become the sexy ones, whereas, you know, before, before that central bankers were, you know, kind of responsible for just what you call being lenders of last resort and monetary policy. Uh, having a central bank-led growth economically um, was, you know, unheard of. But we are where we are. They did what they can. I think central banks... And especially the Fed did a great job in being able to manage an unprecedentedly uh, complex crisis. And we, we came where we came. But as a result, where we are right now, Cal, is a very fragile um, um, markets around the world, financial markets. A lot of money, a lot of liquidity, not enough return. And when you have not enough return, there's only one way to make more money. You have to risk up. 
a part of risking up is to go and put your money into the stock markets. And I think that's why we are seeing a lot of the stock markets around the world, regardless of the jurisdiction, just continue to go up and up and up and up and up. So you have to differentiate. One final part about the markets, and then I'll come to the more positive news because it sounds like a very negative thing, but no, this is just a part of being able to understand Make where you're Make me happy. Yes, I'm happy to see you. I'm going to make you happy. <laughs> you want tequila or whiskey? Huh? Just, just, just kidding. So anyway, one final thing is what makes it different this time is also that we have something called passive money inflows in the market. So it is the ETFs and algorithmic trading that are there to arbitrage the markets on the way up. But they are also there to arbitrage the markets on the way down. So when you have a, a small event that may lead to a sell-off, the magnitude of that sell-off may be much bigger because of those algorithmic trading. So all in all, we are, I think, in a fragile state right now with a lot of change on the way. So where is the upside in this? Now, here is the, here is the escape plan, right? Young people, youth, and I am very optimistic about, um, call them millennials or whatever generation they're right now at, uh, because they think differently. They're not as assets focused as we are. Uh, they're not as money focused as we are. They're much more socially aware because they, I think, grew up in an environment where everyone was connected. And therefore, they were educated to understand uh, and tolerate and believe in the beauty of diversity around the world. Because that's what it is. When, when you have the education, and it doesn't have to be formal education, but when you have the education to understand that every human life is as equal as the other human life, and every culture is different, and that difference in culture and the beliefs, races, is, is a beautiful thing. It makes it a mosaic rather than a single color tile. Uh, and because of that, um, uh, they are different. And combined with the fact that the, their approach to life and their desire to make a difference plays a role, I hope that they will get involved a lot with politics and policymaking and break through this cynicism around the world around what politics is. And that, I think, is going to be um, uh, our future. And by the way, I am very optimistic about uh, the future, long-term future, but I do think that the... The next 5, 10, 15 years need to be extremely well managed. The change has to be managed. And we have to start by acknowledging where we are. So as we wrap this up, I'm wondering, you're traveling around the world. I, I love the forecast of where the young people can take us. What are you seeing when you're traveling around? When people are talking about the Trump administration, when people are talking about Donald Trump, they're talking about the tweets. Does this change by the different culture or is everybody flummoxed the same way? I think Donald Trump is the same Donald Trump in every culture around the world, right? It doesn't, no the, matter what your culture is, you see Donald Trump the same way? I, I think you do, but I mean, okay, here is the, 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 the real answer to that question. Of course, they seem the, the same way because there are no filters, right? So he is doing him in Twitter where there are no barriers. So it's not a press secretary going and saying something on his behalf. He says it. So it's very difficult to misinterpret his intentions if it's coming from his mouth, right? 
Um, but wouldn't the Chinese see it one way? And why, they, why should they? They may interpret it in a different kind of way. They may like it. They may not like it. That, that depends on your position, right? I mean, um, you know, when Donald Trump first got elected, uh, I know for a fact that in Russia people were very happy because they thought that the sanctions would come out soon, come off rather soon. And then now they feel very disappointed. And uh, given all of the, the alleged meddling discussions uh, and the investigation going on in the U.S., they, they now think that, okay, fine, this, this, thing, this, this thing is not going to go away. I mean, those are the, the differences that every single country has, of course, towards any, 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 any political leader in the world, right? But in terms of how they perceive them, I think it's all the same. And what do you think the difference his presidency is going to make in the way the world views politics? Will we have presidents that are tweeting after Trump or is everybody going to say that will never happen again? No, I think, I think it has changed few things for good uh, or for good or for bad, we'll see. Um, look, I think one thing that everyone has understood is one of the reasons why Donald Trump became the president is because people thought he was authentic. He was not a politician, right? I mean, you may agree with him, disagree with him, you may love him, you may hate him, but you got to give it to him, he is doing himself. Now, I mean, you know, arguably that is not a good thing for, you know, the, the position of president, but he is real. Uh, whereas a lot of politicians uh, are not, and uh, the perception uh, is that they're not, and therefore uh, people rather see someone that is real in that seat than someone that is pretending to like them because of their vote. I mean, that I think has changed. That will change. And I'll tell one more thing, and I do believe this. I do not necessarily believe in the merits of being a career politician. Because what is it? What is, what is politics? You're making laws, right? You're governing. How do you know how to deal with different sophisticated parts of um, you know, business life, for example, if you have never been in business? So I'm a fan of the idea of, um, and it doesn't matter what business line you're in or what, what walk of life you came from, okay? But I'm a fan of an idea that people should do politics after they have done something successfully first, so they can bring their um, strong points and skill sets into you know, running ultimately what is a major company, right? Which is a country. Well, wasn't this what Donald Trump was saying? Well, he I wanted said, to run well, the well, well, but, but, like no, a company. No, no, but I said, I said successful business. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely made this thing end on a laugh after all that. Look, you got to laugh, Cal. You got to laugh. Life is good. Um, you have to believe in the fact that you can make a change. And uh, being cynical is the easy route. Okay? Being cynical is the easy route. Um, if you want to make a difference, by all means, go out there and make a difference. But it's up to you to make a difference. You know, it's easy to ask that from somebody else. But you want to make a difference. You have all the power in the world to go and do it. You are your own limitation. So therefore, you know, I do think that uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I'm happy to hear that. And I will be happy to see you at breakfast tomorrow. I'm looking now, forward to that. Now we know that you're in town. 
and to get a little more info on how the world is looking. Thank you so much, Ozan. It's a pleasure, Cal. All right, we will see you at breakfast. That about wraps it up. Our takeaway this week is the realization that we can all find a way to travel simply by inviting people from different cultures into our lives at home. Wherever you live, I'll bet you'd be surprised at how many diverse foreigners you can find around you. All you gotta do is find a way to meet them, sit for a meal, and you've expanded your universe in ways that may be exponential. And remember, as Mark Twain has said, travel is fatal to prejudice. Some thank yous are in order. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for expanding my world by helping me create this podcast. And Jonathan Santiago and Hassan Ramier for the work they've done on expanding the reach of big questions since they've joined the team. I want to thank ZipRecruiter and Squarespace for their support. If you need to hire, go to ZipRecruiter.com. And if you're starting a business and need a website, check out Squarespace.com. Thank you all for joining the journey. We'll see where it takes us next week. Cheers.